by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how Democrats in Maryland are withdrawing their own trans health care bill. Uh, also going to be talking about Britain uh, striking a deal to uh, send migrants to Rwanda. And we are going to have the Red Spin Report today. Where we discuss sports, politics and struggle. Yes, we're doing it a day early because we have something very special planned for tomorrow that you all will be finding out about soon. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. We know it's difficult to keep up with all the agreements and treaties that governments make, especially since this government doesn't tell its citizens about them. And to be fair, I'm pretty sure that most other governments don't do much better with that either. In 1999, the United States and 56 other participating states of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or the OSCE, signed a charter in Istanbul that is another intentionally ignored key to understanding the war in Ukraine. The OSCE is the world's largest regional security organization. They claim they engage in political dialogue and is a forum for political dialogue on a wide range of security issues. There are 57 OSCE member states that cover three continents, North America, Europe, and Asia. The policies the OSCE deliberates over Include security issues like arms control, terrorism, good governance, energy, security, human trafficking, democratization, media freedom, and national minorities that affect more than a billion people. That's, that's what they say on paper and what they say they do on their website anyway. But the 1999 Istanbul Charter, signed by all the member states, says that countries should be free to choose their own security arrangements and alliances, but it specifies that in doing so, countries, quote, will not strengthen their security at the expense of the security of other states, end quote. Now, this charter was raised as the rationale for Russia mobilizing troops inside its border in response to U.S and its Western allies expanding NATO eastward since the Cold War and refusing to rule out granting membership to Ukraine. NATO says, of course, that it's a defensive alliance that's open to new members. But can we be honest, and we always are here on this show, and point out that Russia was not doing anything in Ukraine or anywhere else to put NATO on the defensive. This issue of the charter being violated was raised by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in February when he had a phone conversation with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He said, our Western colleagues are simply trying not even to ignore, but to consign to oblivion this key principle of international law agreed in the Euro-Atlantic space, Lavrov said at the time. We will insist on an honest conversation and an honest explanation of why the West doesn't want to fulfill its obligations or wants to meet them only selectively to its own advantage. 
See, Lavrov had written to the United States, Canada, and a number of governments on January 28th to ask them urgently to explain how they intended to fulfill this commitment to the principle of indivisible security that they all agreed to in the 1999 OSCE Istanbul Charter. What Russia received instead of answers to their questions and dialogue about the West holding up its end of the charter agreement were U.S. and NATO demands that Russia pull back troops from inside its own borders. This happened in February, right around the same time that Biden started claiming that Russia was going to invade Ukraine any day now, the whole time. Russia was trying to get the U.S. to adhere to the OSCE charter that the U.S. signed, but the U.S. was really just pushing for this war. So today, when Chinese President Xi Jinping announced a global security initiative that upholds the principles of indivisible security, it's odd that Reuters, the same outlet that reported Russia's Lavrov trying to get the U.S. to adhere to the OSCE charter in February, they characterized the idea of indivisible security as some mysterious thing that Xi just came up with. It is literally what the 1999 OSCE charter is based on. Reuters goes on to inexplicably say that G's proposal is a concept also endorsed by Russia, but they said that G gave no details on how it would be implemented. Well, not only is the concept endorsed by Russia, it was an agreement signed by 57 member countries of the OSCE in 1999. And Xi doesn't have to give details on how the proposal would be implemented because those details already exist in the 1999 OSCE Istanbul Charter. China is not a member state of the OSCE, by the way, but they're raising the issue of the organization's violation of its own charter to not only point out the hypocrisy of the U.S., EU, and NATO and this horror they created in Ukraine, but also to make their case for defending themselves against further U.S. imperialist aggression in Taiwan and the South China Sea. Li Mingzheng, associate professor at the S. Rajatanam School of International Studies in Singapore, is quoted in the Reuters article today saying, if China deems actions by the U.S. and its allies on Taiwan or the South China Sea as disregarding its security concerns, it could evoke the concept of indivisible security to claim the moral high ground in retaliation. I say defense, but okay. And Wang Jiangju, a law professor at the City University of Hong Kong, said by evoking the concept of indivisible security, which had originated from Europe, China could hope to make its actions in defense of its core interests appear more legitimate to other countries. Security for Europe, but not for Russia or China, right? Xi Jinping says that's not how it should work, and it should not. As Lavrov tried to point out, but was completely dismissed by Anthony Blinken, no country should have their security concerns violated by another country claiming defense while building up their security. The 1999 OSCE Istanbul Charter says that. 
But the way the Reuters article reads, China has concocted some strange thing no one has ever heard of that they're being tight-lipped and secretive about, even though Xi Jinping is literally using language and concepts already established by the OSCE and agreed to by the U.S. and its Western allies. But the U.S. will ignore China's invoking the indivisible security model of the OSCE and claim its sneaky Chinese provocation, just like they did with Russia regarding Ukraine. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Sputnik News analyst and transgender activist Morgan Archukina. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Morgan, here recently in the state of Maryland, Democrats have withdrawn uh, their own bill that was set to expand health care coverage for transgender people, even though they had the majority to pass it. So uh, help us understand what's happening with this House Bill 746, otherwise known as the Trans Health Equity Act, and uh, uh, why the the Democrats would uh, pull this piece. Yeah, so basically what happened is this bill um, would have forced Maryland's Medicaid program to provide coverage for trans people's transition-related treatments, including hormone therapy, surgeries, voice therapy, things like that. It would have benefited at least some 2,000 transgender Americans who, who use Medi- uh, Marylanders, excuse me, who use Medicaid. And the bill went through the uh, Maryland uh, Senate, and then it was, you know, set to be voted on. It went, got out of committee in the House of Delegates and was getting ready to be voted on. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of disappeared. It didn't, um, it never came up for a vote. Their legislative session just ended. It never came up for a vote. And even more mysteriously, it just sort of disappeared from the uh, Maryland General Assembly website. There's no record of the hearings that happened and the expert testimonies and all of that. No record of the votes in the committee to move it out into the general, you know, to bring it to the House, House floor for a vote. All of that, it just disappeared. And so, you know, activists who were watching this and who were very excited because, of course, as we've talked about before, there are all of these anti-trans rights bills right now trying to take away access to trans health care. And um, here was a place where Democrats have a very strong majority, a two to one majority in the, in the Maryland legislature. And they were going to use that to seemingly going to use that to pass a bill that would expand protection rather than take it away. And so people were really excited about it. And then it just disappeared and come to find out, basically, it seems like there were some centrist Maryland Democrats or Democrats who were in, you know, purple districts that could go Republican or whatever, who were really worried about what it would look like come the midterms for them to have a vote in favor of trans rights on their on their record. Or possibly they were just not particularly warm to the idea of defending trans rights or defending poor trans people's uh, health care in particular. Yeah, that's, you know, particularly shocking considering the fact that Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one in both 
chambers. And they could have easily passed this bill and even overridden a veto by uh, Republican Governor Larry Hogan if they had gone ahead and passed it. But, you know, what you said at the end was that, that they weren't warm to the idea of uh, having a bill uh, supporting trans rights on their records is really at the key, uh, you know, to the to what they did with this legislation, because rather than stand for uh, marginalized people, trans people who are much likely to be poor and working class and underpaid, and, uh, unemployed and uh, in precarious housing situations, they chose political expediency instead. Um, so, you know, how do you think this will play for the Democrats who still have to win these districts, particularly among the people that they just told, uh, yeah, we don't really we, we don't really feel like it's politically expedient for us to stand up for you. How, how do you think they're going to fare in the midterms, uh, considering they need the votes of those people they just turned their backs on? Yeah. And that's the real kicker is you've got not just trans people in Maryland, but also many people who aren't trans, but who support trans rights, who believe that trans people have an access to health care or who believe that nobody should be denied access to, you know, any of the things that you listed on account of being trans or of or being anything else. You have people who believe that, who vote for the Democrats because the Democrats have always, well, not always, but have in recent years claimed that that is what they, what they triumph, right? Like several times in the past, you know, year and a half or so, Joe Biden has gotten up there and said, trans people, I've got your back. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to fight this. And there hasn't been really much movement from them. The main fight back against anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ attacks across the country is the ACLU, which is a nonprofit. You know, it's, it's, it's them bringing lawsuits. The, the, the Democrats, claim, you know, it, it feels like a, it really feels like a betrayal. And I think that it's I think it's probably going to hurt them in in the coming election, in part because they have claimed that they are the only ones who can protect LGBTQ people, you know, in this system. Uh, and yet when they're in a position to do so in command of Congress or the presidency or the Maryland General Assembly, as it happens in this case, they fail to do so. They they see us as we, they can make promises and get win our votes, but they don't have to keep those promises once they get in office. And I think a lot of people, definitely a lot of activists that I have talked to who really put their faith in the Democrats are really soured and really feeling personally betrayed by uh, by this move in Maryland. Yeah, you know, what makes this particularly gross to me, Morgan, this issue of Democrats basically throwing transgender people and by extension, I think the LGBTQ community under the bus, basically to kowtow to um, a right wing uh, a voter base, even though they have the majority. I, feel, I just feel like this is a pattern with the Democrats in general. I don't even want to get off into a whole thing on that about how even when they have a majority, they still can't seem to get much done or to really fight for the people that they say is their base. But what makes this even worse is that um, we're in a, a political moment where the LGBTQ community and 
and trans people are under attack. And we've also seen like an uptick in open homophobic and transphobic violence uh, with these narratives of trans people being groomers and, and the sexual abusers of children, which is not new. I mean, th- this 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 trope, this this uh, bigoted cliche about trans people being sexual deviants and perverts and and the whole community supposedly uh, being a threat to children. That's old. But um, uh, in this sort of new uh, uh, sort of culture war moment that we seem to be in, if I could use that phrase, um, we see all this happening as well. And there's no way that these Democrats are, are unaware of this. But instead of taking the opportunity to protect trans people, to protect what should be a fundamental human right in health care, uh, uh, we basically see them retreat and act uh, uh, cowardly. And so I'm not I, I, I really have a two part question there. Um, uh, Morgan, on the one hand, how do you see this move by Democrats in Maryland sort of factoring into this sort of broader dangerous moment for trans folks and LGBTQ folks? And what do you see as sort of the real political force that's going to really fight uh, for these kind of rights when we see that obviously the Democrats will not? Yeah, well, I think that trans people and um, LGBTQ people, but trans people especially, are are really kind of a canary in the coal mine for a lot of for a lot of things, especially when it comes to healthcare. Like it's we're a small percentage of the population. I think maybe at least like half of Americans still don't know a trans person or something like that. That statistic might be smaller now, but you know, I mean, so you know, it's easy to demonize us. It's easy to use us in this kind of campaign. As as you said, it's been happened for a very long time. We've been used in this way, but um, I think that we're the canary in the coal mine in terms of the attacks on health care and on things like that. You know, if they can deny us health care, they can deny you health care. Uh, and and that's especially true when I think about this is a reproductive issue, a reproductive health issue. And there's another fight about reproductive health right now um, about abortion, which is in a threat of being um of being wiped out as a right in the U.S. too by these right-wing forces that have positioned for so long. And I think about how the Democrats had 40 or 50 years to pass a law that would make the that would make abortion a, a legal right in the U.S. law code, and they chose not to do so. And now, you know, they're on the ropes over it. And so I think that it's just across the board a failure to really take seriously the notion that people have a right to things like health care or to housing or to not being discriminated against in uh, in employment or in whatever. And so I, I think that these struggles are very linked, as I think that they're linked to many other struggles, too, against police violence, against gentrification, um, against violence against women and so many other things. So I think that when you when you look at it that way, the question really has to be who's willing to fight for those things across the board. And when you look at the array of forces today, the people who are actually out in the streets, actually organizing to fight these things are the socialists. You know, it's people who are organizing against capitalism itself and fighting for a world that says that these things are a human right, that 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 you cannot deny people this, that says that that, you know, we will not throw anybody under the bus in order to in order to save anybody else. We won't turn politics into a political game. Um, it's 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 a struggle to benefit the working people of the world. And what you're touching on there is very important, Morgan, and that's the class character of 
this whole issue and of the LGBTQ struggle in general, because healthcare is a human rights issue. And you're right that, um, you know, cisgender uh, folks and their healthcare and other basic rights are also under threat when we see this. Now, you recently published a piece about this with Liberation News. And within that um, article, you note that uh, transgender folks are much more likely to be underpaid, working class and poor uh, uh, than their cisgender counterparts. And you reference uh, a McKinsey report from November 2021 called uh, Being Transgender at Work, showing that uh, trans people face twice the unemployment rate of uh, cisgender people and are paid just 60 percent of the wages of of cisgender people. So when we talk about um, these issues of uh, 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 gender and sexuality, um, it's also bound up with these other issues of race and class and elsewhere, as we see the capitalist system uh, exploiting us all, but making it seem as though, well, you know, I'm not transgender. I'm sympathetic to their plight, but I don't really see what that has to do with me. Uh, But in truth, uh, I feel like this is uh, sort of a classic tactic of ruling class division. And we'd be much better off, I think, uh, uh, Morgan, sort of building this kind of mass movements across lines of division to really fight the the class and the system that is harming all of us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, when you think about that, that McKinsey report you talked about, you know, what it's really describing when it says that trans people make 60% of the wages of their cisgender counterparts, that means that the boss is making 40% more profit right. when he employs trans people, right? So it's like that's really kind of what the game is. And that's that that kind of super exploitation is what you see across the board, you know, when it comes to when it comes to racism or when it comes to sexism, when you talk about how women or black folks or, you know, um, Latinas only make, you know, so many cents on the dollar, that's so many cents more that the capitalist makes in profit. And that's such an essential part of the capitalist system. Uh, so really kind of identifying the, the, the root, you know, cause of these things really creates a basis for us to reorient our struggles against it so that we aren't so much worrying about trying to get some ruling class politician in power who will really take seriously their promises to defend us. And we can actually organize with people just like us to defend ourselves. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, Britain's partnership with Rwanda to uh, settle some migrants and the implications of all this. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Tamanisha John, a Caribbean regional analyst and professor at Clark Atlanta University. Dr. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. John, here recently, uh, British Home Secretary Priti Patel um, announced a plan to fly uh, asylum seekers and migrants to Rwanda for resettlement and 
processing. And uh, reportedly, uh, the Rwanda government will be getting around $157 million for job training, housing, and other services, with uh, Patel describing this as a, quote, joint new migration and economic development partnership. And, uh, you know, this has already, I I think, received some... Uh, backlash and criticism, even from the U.N. Refugee Agency, who uh, put out a statement saying, quote, UNHCR remains firmly opposed to arrangements that seek to transfer refugees and asylum seekers to third countries in the absence of sufficient safeguards and standards. Such arrangements simply shift asylum responsibilities, evade international obligations and are contrary to the letter and spirit of the Refugee Convention. Adding, people fleeing war, conflict, and persecution deserve compassion and empathy. They should not be traded like commodities and transferred abroad for processing. And that's coming from the UNHCR's Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, Jillian Triggs. And I got to say, Dr. John, that really does feel like what's happening here is that uh, Britain appears to be uh, paying Rwanda basically for, you know, getting rid of the migrants that they don't want, just sort of dumping these human beings are fleeing these seriously conditions off um, on this country like so much uh, uh, rubbish. But I mean, you know, what what are you sort of and how are you sort of analyzing this whole process that's going on here? And, and what do you think is really at play? So, of course, what the UNHCR representative said is correct. You had Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Britain, who made the foolish statement that their compassion may be infinite, but their capacity to help people is not. And although that statement didn't really cause as much uproar in this whole process, I think it's important to remember that since 2015, the European Union, and uh, this included uh, Britain as well, they've been reanalyzing and reinterpreting sort of the UN Refugee Convention and its 1967 protocol. And so in 2015, I don't know if people know this, but the EU actually released a report saying that uh, protection for refugees does not apply to persons who represent a security threat to their host country and that the Geneva Convention does not exclude removal of asylum seekers to safe third countries. Asylum seekers unlawfully present in a state can be required to seek protection in another country but those lawfully present cannot be expelled from its territory. And I think that this reinterpretation by the European Union as a whole is very important because, one, it asserts that uh, they will now make strict distinctions on who they deem illegal or non-illegal. So when the prime minister of the U.K. came forward and announced this deal, he stressed the fact that they were uh, deporting or removing illegal people from Britain to transport to Rwanda. And of course, in his illegal category, he included refugees and asylum seekers and made the case that he was able to do this precisely because of Brexit and that the Britain would not be subjected to EU standards. But if we go back to the EU component for a bit, in the EU component, they state that the Geneva Convention does not exclude removal of asylum seekers to these other safe third uh, countries. And I think that this is important because prior to Britain securing this deal with Rwanda, Denmark earlier or the Danish people were pursuing a deal prior to Britain. And so you have this sort of um, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-asylum seeker rhetoric 
uh, and reinterpretation of international norms, laws, and principles that are already happening in Europe. You have many European states pretending that they are being overran by uh, immigrants and asylum seekers that they don't want. And so there has been this intentional, over the past almost decade, uh, reinterpretation of conventions, norms, and principles in order to keep migrants out of the European Union as a whole and also out of Britain. And with this, I think that it's very important because we should be critiquing sort of this reinterpretation of laws and conventions that's occurring in Europe precisely so that they can keep certain migrants and asylum seekers and refugees out. Yeah, Dr. John, and, and aside from the, you know, the uh, uh, political implications, there is the economic component of this uh, uh, agreement uh, that Britain has uh, made with Rwanda, a country that uh, certainly the former colonial powers have uh, destabilized and exploited. Rwanda would get around $150, $157 million for housing, job training, and other services uh in exchange for receiving the uh, migrants. But this really just sounds to me like another form of uh, neo-colonial exploitation where uh, a wealthy country outsources their humanitarian responsibilities to poorer countries, countries that they've made poor, um, but have dangled this little bit of uh, carrot of money in front of them uh, to do that. What What are your thoughts on the economic as- aspect of this agreement? So one of my colleagues yesterday, Dr. Owinga, he actually asserted, alerted me to the fact that this deal went through with Rwanda and Britain. And I think that to simply paint it as something that's strictly a richer country forcing something onto a poorer country, in this case, is misguided, especially because Britain has had went to other African countries who denied the same offer. And I think what we need to look at is why Rwanda would accept this deal. My colleague was in disbelief that this deal with Rwanda could happen under Kagame. And I feel as if a lot of people are interrogating the fact that Kagame himself has always been a lackey for Western imperialism, even though he rhetorically spouses this sort of pan-African uh, rhetoric. And so Paul Kagame, who is the current uh, pre- president of Rwanda that signed this deal with Britain in 2018, he was seeking to sign a similar deal with Israel so that Israel would resettle its refugees in Rwanda as well. And so I think that the deal is only possible based on who Kagame is and his relationship with the West. He is a proud, you know, Zionist who goes and speaks at APAC frequently. He already is perpetuating mass atrocities in his resource-rich neighbor of the Congo, Rwanda as a state itself is a small state. It is quite a poor state, and there are people who are repressed in Rwanda under his regime. And so I don't necessarily think that it's the case that uh, these poorer states were forced so much as Kagame has used his agency as an ally to the West in order to institute such a deal for economic gain while lying to his people and shocking many people who view him as this sort of international pan-Africanist because they hear the rhetoric that he espouses, but they don't actually know the types of policies uh, that Kagame routinely engages with uh, Western states in. And resettlement policies of refugees is something that Kagame has always been in talks with Western states about. 
Yeah, Dr. John, did you see that video recently when Paul Kagame uh, visited Jamaica and he like laid a wreath at the shrine of uh, Marcus Garvey? You know, <laughs> you know, like yeah. any good Pan-African is would. And, you know, maybe this is an aside, but I do feel like the character of these governments and their uh, leadership and the politics they're in are, are relevant here. So when we look at somebody like uh, Paul Kagame, I mean, why do you think he tries to strike this uh posture as sort of a, a pan-Africanist, a part of, you know, a long uh, a sort of storied uh, a tradition amongst, you know, uh, certainly the African continent and the African diaspora, while, as you, you know, noted, um, engaged with these governments and, and these policies that seemed oftentimes to be more than favorable to the West and, you know, uh, uh, maybe not terribly beneficial to the people of Rwanda themselves. Yes. So I think that in the present day, you have this sort of fervor throughout the African continent that wants AFRICOM out and wants to oppose Western imperialism by France, the United States and all of these other states. And so it has become extremely popular for certain presidents to express pan-Africanism as, you know, pan-Africanism as an ideology espouses black liberation, wherever it may be. And so uh, I think that a lot of leaders are under pressure to assert that fact precisely because the people are engaged in these anti-colonial and anti-imperial struggles against Western states. And so any president that poses themselves as an obvious ally to the West uh, would be rejected or met with mass protest. And so I think that you have a lot of leaders who find themselves in limbo that I need to espouse this rhetoric to appease people who would otherwise strike or protest against me if they knew the truth or condemn me if they knew the truth, but yet also uh, maintain uh, this pan-African facade, while politically, materially, economically, I am allied with the West. And we see it all of the time. We can think back to Ob the Obama presidency in the U.S., for instance. Many people thought that he would bring about this sort of hope and change. And then by his second term, you had a lot of the black community who was disappointed that he didn't necessarily deliver for them. So I think oftentimes you do have it where these leaders are straddling this rope. But this is not to excuse these leaders because they also have power and agency within their realm. Because as I pointed out before, uh, this deal was expressed uh, not just to Rwanda and uh, Kagame, but also to other African leaders who said no, that some people, I assume, would have thought that they would have said yes. States like Kenya, for instance, I think that some people thought Kenya would have been more acceptable to a deal like this. But even they were like, no. I think that what we need to focus on is the fact that uh, the EU wants this deterrence to keep migrants out of Britain, and they're willing to give Rwanda all of this aid because they've accepted this deal under Kagame to rehouse these migrants in a country where people are already poor. And what an influx of, of refugees from Europe means for those people if it is only those refugees who would be perceived as getting assistance. And also, we can't discount what the racial makeup of these refugees would look like um, as well. We currently know that there is a refugee crisis in Europe with Ukrainian refugees, but I highly doubt that the Ukrainian refugees will be the ones that get branded as being illegal. It is most likely going to be the Africans and Middle Easterners and other immigrants that Europe itself has always tried to keep out to maintain some sort of uh, purity within Europe. And I think that you have agents like Kagame um, in Rwanda who are happy to help them facilitate these goals for small monetary gain while 
again, shunning his people, and he will receive support from the international community precisely because, again, he espouses this sort of pan-African rhetoric. And so it's a sad story all around, to be quite honest. Yeah, it definitely is, particularly in regard to the people, the people being bartered like commodities. Uh, And this is something that the U.N. Refugee Agency opposed of the reason they opposed it, that, you know, people fleeing war, conflict and persecution deserve compassion and empathy. This is what they said. They should not be traded like commodities and transferred abroad for processing. Uh, So, you know, what of the human toll uh, of this deal uh, that was made once uh, people are resettled in Rwanda, then then what kind of additional support do they get for stability uh, in their new uh, home? And, and and honestly, you know, what what uh, assistance for stability does Rwanda receive? So, qu- quite frankly, uh, earlier on, I started off talking about how the EU was reinterpreting this law in order to say that they could remove people um, into these uh, other countries that are safe. But we have to be m- mindful that Rwanda is one of the poorest countries in the world. And as Michaela Rong pointed out a few days ago, it is also the single most densely populated state in Africa. And so Rwanda itself is already sh- currently struggling to accommodate a refugee caseload uh, from its uh, from refugees that are currently coming from the Congo. And so when even though the European Union and Britain, for instance, are creating these resettlement laws to employ some sort of strategic uh, depopulation to upkeep their purity, what we need to recognize is that it is already the case that poorer states on the African continent, in the Middle East, in Latin America, and also you have Turkey that houses the majority of today's refugees and asylum seekers. And so when we look at the human cost of resettling people to a country that you are deeming safe only because you have an ally in Kagame, when that country is drastically poor, drastically is already lacking services to accommodate uh, 130,000 refugees, what, you're, what they're saying is that they're going to send people in a, into an even more precarious situation. But I want you to also know that the violence and the cruelty of removing refugees from Britain and putting them in Rwanda, an already struggling state, is exactly the point. Because this sort of deal with Rwanda doesn't save Britain any money and it doesn't give Rwanda a lot of money to address much of the structural, um, social and economic problems that Rwanda has. The cruelty is the point because deterrence is the overall goal of states like Britain and other states in the EU pursuing similar policies. And so once these... uh, people are resettled into Rwanda, they're still going to be met by extreme poverty and maybe even violence, because as I pointed out before, as an ally to the West, Kagame is engaged in military incursions on his other African neighbors. And so Rwanda itself as a country is not the most stabilist country um, on the continent. And again, it is the poorest and the most densely populated. And so what they want to do with this deal is to actually send refugees to what they would deem as a worse place so that refugees won't make the trek to come into Britain and won't make the trek to come into the EU. And so I also think that that's why the UNHCR was so forthright in their condemnation, 
because there is no way that you can justify resettling people to a state that already cannot uh, accommodate the refugees there, to a state that is already poor and has all of these different structural issues, that simply housing refugees will be a major challenge. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today being joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective and the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. And Miguel, uh, the All England Lawn Tennis Club, which runs the famous Wimbledon tournament, has banned players from Belarus, from Belarus and Russia from competing uh, in the Wimbledon competition, which is set to run from uh, June 27th through uh, July 10th. Now, the All England Club said in a statement, quote, Given the profile of the championships in the United Kingdom and around the world, it is our responsibility to play a part in the widespread efforts of the government, industry, sporting and creative institutions to limit Russia's global influence through the strongest means possible. In the circumstances of such unjustified and unprecedented military aggression, it would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the involvement of Russian or Belarusian players with uh, the championship. Now, of course, this would also prevent uh, Daniil Medvedev, a, a Russian tennis player who's number two in the world, and also uh, Andrei Rublev, who's number eight, in uh, the world from participating. And it, it, it this just feels like a, you know, a sports organization taking it upon itself um, to basically punish uh, uh, Russian and Belarusian players for uh, a war, an invasion that they didn't have anything to do with. And I'm just wondering how you're uh, uh, sort of analyzing this, Miguel, as we continue to see this kind of um, pressure put on uh, uh, Russian athletes, entertainment and things like this who are being made to answer for, you know, the actions of their home government. Yeah, Sean. So, as you mentioned, uh, Daniil Medvedev was the number two player in men's tennis. He recently had just won the U.S. Open, um, which, you know, is like the is probably the biggest tennis tournament besides Wimbledon and like the French Open. It's one of the four majors. So it's kind of crazy how you ban the number two player in the world from the biggest, like the Super Bowl of tennis, just because he's Russian and, and it's, you know, just because of his national origin. Um, but when I heard about this, I, I, I wasn't surprised because of what's been happening since the war started and how other athletes and teams from Russia have been banned throughout sports. Um, but I was a little surprised by some of the articles I read that were actually uh, 
you know, against the ban because it came from some of some sports journalists that don't I don't tend to agree with because they'll usually take like a anti-China narrative stance on sports when it came to the Olympics and things like that. But I was a little I was actually surprised that they were actually against this banning of the Russian players. And then people don't know with Wimbledon, the Tennis Law and Association um, is affiliated with the uh, the uh, uh, ATP that um, runs the men's tennis throughout the world and all the tournaments. But the the Tennis Lawn Association Wimbledon is kind of like its own body, its own power, so they could make these decisions without getting approval from the ATP, which actually also disagreed with the ban. Um, so it just showed up, I guess, the Tennis Lawn Association Wimbledon, you know, the, the old guard of tennis here is using that power, their influence, to ban Russian players as they see fit because of what's happening in Ukraine with the war. Um, but it also, just, to me, it's very disturbing. Besides the, the past, uh, recent past athletes being banned in other sports, usually it had to do with teams like feet, like the Russian soccer team, which I, I guess they could say is associated with the government because it's representing a country. But now, now it's going down to individual players and even top players in a sport here, like, like here with the uh, Wimbledon. So I think it's just disturbing and uh, could, lead, could lead us down a path of more uh, discrimination of a- other uh, athletes due to national origin. And that is what some of these uh, journalists that I usually don't agree with were actually um, arguing, that this will lead to more uh, discrimination in sports, depending on national origin, depending on what's happening in the world with geopolitics. Um, and... They, one of these articles even argued, you know, we didn't do this when the U.S. invaded Iraq. We didn't start banning U.S. players from Wimbledon and up and then other sports. But here we are because they're Russian and Belarus, Belarusian, and they're associated with just because of their association of where they're from. They're getting banned, and so just this happening is uh, something very disturbing that uh, I hope doesn't lead to more discrimination of athletes just because of where they're from. Yeah, definitely. And and it's good to know that there are um, uh, um, journalists or sports journalists and, and uh, other aspects of the sports world that have pushed back on this move uh, by the All England Lawn Tennis Club, who, you know, ironically, they talk about limiting Russia's global influence um, and, and, you know, their their power. It, I don't know what kind of influence Russian and Belarusian tennis players have in in advancing any kind of aims of the Russian government. That's just bizarre to me. But but they claim to be doing this to limit Russia's global influence, and they're wielding their influence and power in a way uh, to d- discriminate against people, as you said, based on where they're from. But I, I do wonder. Have the players, have the other tennis um, athletes spoken out in response to this decision? And do you foresee any boycotts from any of the athletes uh, from Wimbledon? I hope there is some boycotts of some of the players. Uh, I know one of the top players, I always butcher his last name, Dojanovic, um, I believe. 
he was recently banned because of COVID stuff at the Australian Open. Um, you know, it was separate from this stuff, but he he was pretty upset about this banning, and he disagreed with it. So I'm hoping, even though he's kind of like a controversial player, he's one of the top players in the world as well. And I'm hoping that that if he's disagreeing and very uh, angry about this banning of other of Russian players, that I'm hoping that yeah, other players will maybe protest or make a statement that they're not agreeing with this ban and it's you know this ban shouldn't happen just because the players from a certain country uh you know a certain ethnicity so my hope is that maybe this will fuel some protests at mobile end which is something we're not used to seeing in the sport of tennis compared to more of the major team sports like we've seen in the nba nfl um even soccer when it comes to fifa uh, tournaments or english premier league um, we've seen players in those sports protests. Um, so I'm really hoping that this will, I guess, this uh, disturbing ban of Russian players will lead to something like that with some of the tennis players that are in the tournament because it could happen to them. It's not just, you know, there's just not Americans and British players in this tournament. There's players from all over the world. So I'm hoping some of that those players that are international from other places in the world that have felt the wrath of U.S. imperialism in their own countries um, maybe will also protest. And so that's my hope. I hope hopefully some players do that. Um, some players have, like Don Jonovich, have spoken up. So I'm hoping there's more players that will do that as well. Yeah, and switching gears uh, a little bit here, Miguel, to uh, talk about some NBA news. Uh, Kyrie Irving of uh, uh, the Brooklyn team um, has been fined $50,000 for uh, uh, multiple um, instances of, uh, you know, flipping off, showing his middle finger to the fans in Boston as uh, Brooklyn played the uh, Celtics here recently in a uh, first round opener, also reportedly issue of uh, profane language being used at the fans as well. Now, of course, Kyrie is a former Celtic himself who, who left the team under circumstances that maybe were not so great. And I can't help but think about what we've been hearing um, over the last, you know, couple of years, although I don't know that it was really a secret about, you know, the racism that was faced by, you know, black athletes in uh, Boston, uh, even when they play for uh, uh, the team. And I mean, I feel like Boston just as a city has a serious reputation for racism. But I mean, what do you make for the, of this finding situation uh, with Kyrie? So I really, as a Laker fan, I loved it. that <laughs> <laughs> He flipped off the uh, Boston fans. Um, I know there's some cool Boston fans, but as you said, Sean, there's a there's been that history of Boston fans and racism and anti-blackness, and they didn't really mention this when about when all the articles I read and journalists talking about Kyrie Irving getting fined and flipping off the fans. But I'm pretty sure he probably heard some anti-black, some racist profanity from that from the fans because I. They did already, you know, they called them all these other names, so I wouldn't be surprised if they called them um, some even worse names, in, um, knowing the history of Boston, and then also knowing the history between Boston and Kyrie Irving. Just, you know, he left the team when he was he was with the Celtics and then left them to Brook, for Brooklyn. So they already have this hate, this uh, hatred with each other. But I, I disagree with the, the finding, because I think it's BS. 
it's 50,000 for him standing up for flipping off fans that are harassing him. I think more players should uh, speak up against fans. I'm a fan myself, but, you know, some fans step out of line and players should stand up for themselves a little bit. You know, we don't want some malice in the palace stuff happening, but um, I really like that Kyrie Irving did not care and he stood up for himself, did what he did, and then even when he was interviewed, he spoke about, like, you know, I've been dealing with these fans since I left them. They've been, you know, harassing them since he left. Um, and then, as you said, Boston has that history of anti-blackness. And recently, I've been watching the uh, HBO Max series Winning Time, which is based on the Showtime Lakers. And they, this past episode kind of um, took a deep dive into that history of Boston being racist against black players. Because at that time, when the LA Lakers and Celtics were battling in the eighties um, for NBA, you know, to be the best NBA teams they were always in the finals fight, uh, playing each other, Larry Bird versus Manny Johnson. Uh, we always heard stories of um, NBA players, black players talking about the fans being racist towards them. And even there's a famous incident of Bill Russell, who, who was one of the greatest players in history the greatest Celtic ever. I'll call him the greatest Celtic ever, not Larry Bird. But um, <laughs> he won them 13 championships, but they still didn't treat him well because he was black. He, he one time he got to his home after one of their championship uh, victories, and I guess people, you know, took the did their business on his bed and left it on his bed. Like they did some bad things to Bill Russell. So there's this history of anti-blackness in Boston. I think this is what this is all about. And I'm glad that Kyrie Irving says something, and I disagree with the signing, but I know how it is. The NBA is going to do that because they want their players, you know, to represent the game the right way, as they say. But, yeah, it was – was, so I wanted to talk about this story because, to me, it's just another example of Boston versus, you know, black athletes. Boston and their anti-blackness towards black athletes. And Kyrie Irving stood up for himself and didn't hold back. Yeah, and you know, this also makes me think about, you know, why why does there never really seem to be any accountability for the fans? I mean, I feel like we see this all the time. I know Russell Westbrook uh, had serious issues with this. It's like people think that because they pay money to come see this game that they can say whatever to these athletes and do whatever, insult them, and, you know, the the, the, the athletes are just supposed to stand there and, and take it. It's just supposed to grin and bear it. And if they say something back or, you know, anything like that, then all of a sudden they're the problem and they're, like, stigmatizing the media and things like this. But I just feel like there's a real issue in fan culture to where people feel entitled to basically talk crazy at to mouth to these, you know, like well-paid athletes who are in peak physical condition who would mop the floor with them, like if, if they said the same thing to them on the street. But since there's kind of that invisible barrier between athletes and fan that they, they, they feel kind of safe, you know what I mean? It's, it's just irritating to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it just it kind of just reminds me of also like how people fans are on the internet. And they get tough through the keyboard and do all this. And it's kind of very similar when it comes to being at the game. Because as you said, there's like this invisible barrier because they're separated from the players on the court. You know, there's security and all this other stuff. So a lot of these fans feel entitled. Like, oh, I paid all this money to watch this game, which you did pay this money to watch this game. But that doesn't give you the right to harass another human being, you know, just because they're on the team you don't like. Um, and then usually when they attack these athletes, they're usually 
brown and black people, you know? Yeah. So I think that's always something I keep in mind as well when this happens, when the fans harass them. Because, you know, it's not, not all fans are just white fans, but I always tend to notice that it's usually white fans doing this harassment. Like with Russell Westbrook, uh, recently a lot of Laker fans are being nasty towards him. And then even in the past, there's been a, other incidents with Russell Westbrook. I think it was in Utah, I believe, a couple years ago. And that was a white fan harassing him. So, yeah, it's, it's it's just a trip how these how some of these fans feel they have the right to do this to these players because of this invisible barrier. But like you said, Sean, if they were on the street with this with these athletes, they wouldn't say a thing because they would, as you said, they would get something. The players would do something to them, and it wouldn't be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not going to bust a grape. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, <laughs> for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, hit it by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways still for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can call us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio slash by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out at Sputnik's sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen Live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're streaming live on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kambale Musavuli, an activist, writer, and analyst with the Center for Research on the Congo, Kinshasa. Kambale, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Kambale, uh, Michigan state officials reportedly have asked the Department of Justice to launch something called a pattern or practice investigation into the Grand Rapids Police Department 
following a one of their officers shooting and killing 26-year-old Patrick Leoya um, earlier this month in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, uh, uh, these pattern or practice investigations uh, reportedly are not that common, and they're done by investigators basically to determine uh, if departments have these kinds of patterns of discrimination or racism or things like this with the sort of purported task of, uh, uh, you know, making these departments operate better or I guess less racist or something. I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, not, not to laugh, but I, you know, I just don't know how, how effective uh, that sort of thing is in a institution as fundamentally racist as the police in the United States. But, you know, even if we look at um, Patrick Leoya's uh, history, who was unarmed, of course, by the way, when, uh, you know, the officer shot, shot him in the back of the head while he was laying face down and uh, uh, killing him. But Leoya's family actually came to the United States from the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2014, uh, uh, centering around conflict that was happening inside the Congo at that time and reportedly were were living in Malawi uh, when they were able to uh, get asylum here in the U.S. And, you know, thinking about Patrick Leoya Kambale, I couldn't help but also think about other immigrants that have been victims of racist police terror. I mean, I was thinking of uh, Amadou Diallo, a man from Guinea, West Africa, uh, who in 1999 was shot and killed when four plainclothes officers from the NYPD, from something known as the Street Crimes Unit, uh, shot and killed him because, you know, supposedly they thought that uh, he was a rape suspect. And as he approached, they thought he was firing a gun, which is wild. There's nothing subtle about firing a gun. I'm not sure you could confuse that. But the four officers fired 41 shots hitting Dialu 19 times as he was in the doorway of his own house, right? And then I'm also thinking of uh, Abner Luima, a man from Haiti, who in 1997 was brutally beaten, sodomized, tortured, really, also by New York police. I mean, they left him with a punctured bladder, a severed colon. I mean, just inhuman uh, what was done to this man. And so I'm just sort of generally curious uh, uh, your thoughts about the Leoya uh, uh, situation here, uh, Kambali, because to me, it just feels very connected with the issue of uh, immigration and asylum and racist police terror and internal, you know, uh, political issues within the Congo. And, you know, how do you see these different dynamics sort of, you know, leading to this uh, police killing here? You're asking me a very difficult question. Uh, And the reason is uh, this really hit home. Um, It hit home very hard because uh, when uh, videos of police violence usually are released, I do my best not to watch them. Uh, Up until today, I have never watched the George Floyd uh, assassination. Um, I knew that if I watch it, uh, the level of rage I will have will be difficult. But I really wanted to understand uh, what actually happened with your wife, because I myself have been a victim of police violence. Um, where the, I, was, I arrived in the United States in 1998, did not speak any English. The officer did not know. I'm like, he didn't shoot me in 1998 beat me down, put handcuffs on me until no, family members came, uh, other people came and said what was happening, and you realize that he arrested the wrong person. Um, so 
I remember that. And I wanted to see what actually happened with him. And when I watched the video, everything that he did was exactly what I did when I was approached by the police in 1998. Literally every single thing. One, you are being called by the police. You have no idea why. Now you are afraid uh, because you, you have to think about this coming from a country uh, that is worked on for the past two decades. Over six million Congolese have died in the DRC due to the conflict. A conflict fuel to get resources that benefit our um, you know, electronic devices, right? And he's been a victim of that conflict. He's seen the rebel groups. He's seen the Congolese army. He's seen the violence of militarism in his community. So there is already a very uh, different relationship that exists between uh, state uh, police, uh, the military that exists, right? There is the fear of the military, the fear of the police that exists. And you can see that in his eyes. And through all the interaction that he had, especially even when I saw him moving the taser away, that's very instinctive of someone who's really afraid of his life because he's trying to figure out why he has been stopped. What did he do that merit the one, the tone of the officer, the aggressiveness of the officer, that he responded like any immigrant that's coming from the context will respond. And the most shocking was the bullet in the head. And when that happened, I mean, he, for, for us Congolese, he reminded us not just of the deaths of millions during this conflict, but the history of killing Congolese for hundreds of years. It reminded us of what Leopold did to our country. It reminded us of the brutal assassination of Patrice Mumba, the first democratically elected leader of our country, or any other Congolese who rise up. So within the Congolese community, especially uh, this month, we've had over three Congolese. Uh, we've had three Congolese in the United States who have been killed in different contexts. The community is speaking about this challenge that exists around no justice when violence takes place. So whatever investigation that may take place to find if there is proper training, we are forgetting a fundamental situation. There is no investigation that can be done today that would tell any person around the world that it is normal for an officer to pick up his gun and shoot someone in the back of the head while they're really in the submission position. So that's one thing that I wanted to make sure that you know, we get that the killing of Patrick Yola br has brought up memories of the suffering of the Congolese, of the killing of the Congolese. And Malcolm X says, I mean, the show is by any means necessary. My, Malcolm X said it well. If you want to understand what's happening in Mississippi and Alabama, you must understand what's happening in the Congo. Now reverse it, that in 2014, in Ferguson, Africans were there in support of the community in Ferguson. I myself was with the youth of Ferguson in uh, 2014. Why? Because when I also saw what happened to Mike Brown, I saw myself in it. And I just saw myself, I said, I cannot stay in New York watching what's happening. I must go there to be in solidarity with people who are fighting for justice. Because that's the discussion. Uh, that needs to be had. That's the mobilization that needs to be had. That we must fight for justice. That will give us reasoning. Do you? I mean, we all know during slavery, 
that they were institutions, not they were legal institutions, and people could use the legal means to justify that slavery was legal, was normal. So it's probably normal for them to use the state institution today to protect the police, which in nature right now has been a tool of violence, a tool of oppression. And finally, my, my hope, uh, which I already see is already happening, that this uh, will unite us more. Because everywhere you see people of color, you see how they treat us. Even in Ukraine, people who were most uh, treated with disrespect, uh, with abandonment and everything were Africans. You know, so and we seeing that around the world. Uh, so we must actually fight every day more and more to unite because the violence that's taking place for all oppressed anywhere around the world will always happen also to us. And the more we work together to end it, the more we demand justice. And even if we don't get justice, we force justice to exist. That's when uh, the there will be a form of human dignity. Uh, I will end by saying, you know, one of uh, uh, a strong sentiment that I have, and I've said it a few times in different platforms, that it is still cheap to kill a black person in the world. Today it becomes expensive to kill a black person. That's when human dignity for black people will come. Because we saw on January 6th, I believe, 2021, a thousand how white people invaded Congress. And we saw how police could not shoot anybody in the back of the head. And we can justify today that if they could uh, not kill anyone on January 6, 2021, that today we'll be okay with the killing of Patrick Yola. And you know, Kambali, you're speaking to something that I think was expressed by uh, Leoya's grandmother, who I think lives in California. And uh, she was just obviously just beside herself with grief. But she was saying something like, you know, they said if you come to the United States, you, you know, you can live in peace. You'll be treated with dignity. We won't have to deal with the issues that we dealt with in Congo, the wars, the militarism, the the murders. Do you think that this fairy tale view of the United States, this this America dream, uh, American dream kind of view of the United States is being dismantled, uh, not just with you know, these incidents continuing to happen to immigrants, but also with the growing solidarity that you are talking about. Do you do you get the sense that people in the Congo and on the continent are really seeing that life in America for Africans in this country is not that much different from life for Africans in the countries that the U.S. government and its allies has helped to continue to destabilize, to create the conditions that people are trying to flee. Absolutely. And I think the turning point uh, for our generation now 
is what happened to George Floyd. If you remember, there were mass protests around the death of, of George Floyd, not just in the United States, it was around the world, even in Ghana, where I'm speaking, you from, uh, uh, I'm speaking from right now. There were protests to denounce police brutality and to denounce the assassination of George Floyd. So it's coming slowly. The myth still is hard to dispel, but slowly Africans are understanding it. So George Floyd is one of the examples. What is happening in Ukraine and the treatment of Africans in Ukraine is also exposing uh, that myth. Why? We've just been informed in the local news have for six weeks, over a million refugees crossed the border in the United States, and only 5,000 of them were uh, uh, given refugee status. All the 5,000 were Ukrainians. Imagine how people are interpreting that in, in, on the African continent. So yes, people are becoming much more clear about the myth of what the United States is, but it is still a hard, difficult myth to destroy if the unity is not built. Because the U.S. embassies in every African country, they are very busy engaging uh, African communities by, you know, presenting the USAID project of um, agriculture, healthcare, HIV, and so on, uh, which is U.S. taxpayers' money. But when we have more and more interaction with uh, U.S. soft power, you know, we, most people forget that it's still the United States of America. So it's really important in, at this moment uh, to really build the ties across the Atlantic, to build the ties uh, across the world, to understand that on the African continent, one of the things that's affecting us today is how our how government, the state institutions, are using Israeli spy tools to spy on African activists. You know, they're using Pegasus. Many young Africans have been arrested by the state due to the use of Pegasus by African states. That's allowing young Africans to, to know, oh, wait a minute, they probably tried Pegasus on Palestinians. So how can we connect with Palestinians to understand how uh, they have been fighting for their own liberation? So at this conjuncture, uh, the key for us to, is to build unity as the myth day by day is being dispelled. Yeah, and I mean, you, you mentioned Israel. You know, when I first <clears throat> moved to D.C., the the police chief at that time was a woman named Kathy Lanier who once said that, you know, nothing had a greater influence on her career than uh, the time she spent in Israel. And we know that there are like uh, basically training exchange programs between the police departments of the United States and Israel. And so these repressive, uh, deadly tactics that we see uh, U.S. police use here in this country, or at least partially uh, influenced by the training that they receive from the apartheid government of Israel and its genocidal campaign of uh, 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 of apartheid against the Palestinian people. And, and I feel like I just got to say, I mean, you know, Kambale, I think very correctly talked about the need to strengthen these bonds. And it just makes it that much more disgusting that we have people, black people, 
in this country, the United States, that are seeking to segregate and to divide the African diaspora. These are fools who must be resisted vigorously. I don't care what cause they say that they're fighting for. They have very purposefully, I think, removed imperialism as the core contradiction here. Understanding imperialism as the highest form of capitalism and how that capitalist exploitation and the contradictions of that system create the suffering that we see in countries like the Congo all over the African continent. Of course, we know about the presence of AFRICOM and there's a direct connection between that and the militarization of police, the violence of which is mostly visited upon the heads of black people, brown people, and poor working and oppressed people in general. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kambale Musavuli. And Kambale, before we went to the break, you you mentioned uh, the war in Ukraine, which I appreciated because you're making some serious connection between the international situation and the domestic situation here in the United States, which, you know, at least in my estimation, is is worsening. People are seeing their material conditions get worse in this country. And, you know, we've been really pushing back here on the show. This idea that the U.S. and the West are putting forth that the quote-unquote international community is basically in line with the West as it pertains to their uh, orientation towards Russia and uh, uh, Russia's invasion to Ukraine. And in reality, when you hear the West say the quote-unquote international community, they're basically talking about Uncle Sam and his little friends. They're talking about the United States and their junior partners in Western Europe and Australia and all, you know, manner of uh, sundry vassal states and things like that. But that's not the real uh, international community. These, you know, wealthy, uh, generally uh, white countries uh, do not represent the international community all by themselves. If we look back to March 2nd uh, of this year, of course, the, the UN General Assembly had an emergency session to pass a non-binding resolution to sort of formally condemn Russia for its invasion in Ukraine. 141 countries voted for the, rev- uh, excuse me, for the resolution, five voted against, 35 abstained, and 12 did not vote. Now, out of the 35 countries that abstained, 17 of them were African countries. And of the five uh, countries that voted against, the only African country in that number is Eritrea. 
that uh, joined along with Russia, Syria, North Korea, and another one that escapes me. I want to say Belarus. Yeah, it was Belarus, right? But if you take a, a look at how that played out, Kambale, I just feel like the real situation is just far more complex than just the quote-unquote world against Russia. Because I feel like if you look at how the global South voted, how countries that are in what we may call the periphery voted, as opposed to countries in the core, like the U.S. and the West, you know, the imperial core in that way, it's actually, I think, a more complex situation than what we've been told. And I feel like we're very purposefully here in the U.S. being fed a narrative that the whole world is with uh, the U.S. In, in, in joining in terms of uh, how they're analyzing the, the, the war in Ukraine. But I, that honestly just doesn't seem to be the case when you at least look at the hard numbers, at least from things like this U.N. General Assembly, which is just an indicator. But, uh, but even still. And so my question to you is, you know, why do you think that we saw this kind of response from some of these different African countries? I mean, uh, I know recently Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa squarely put the blame on NATO for uh, the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, Africa, very large continent, very diverse in a number of ways, including politically. But what do you make of the picture, if you will, Kambale, of how uh, different governments on the African continent are sort of orienting towards uh, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine? The first point is that Africans um, instinctively do not like war. We've lived through many wars and we've seen many deaths. So the general position of Africans is we don't want war. And two, we don't want Africans to be dragged into a war that they do not understand. Right? And why am I saying this? A few years ago, the West was able to convince a few African states, um, South Africa was one of them, to support a resolution to bomb Libya. Not South Africa supported the resolution. And they've learned a lesson. Because what they saw had nothing to do with protecting human rights of Libyans. And whenever NATO descended on an African country, Libya, and destroyed that country, guess who was harmed the most? Africans, black Africans. They were sold into slavery. That slavery. We saw the photos. We saw the videos. We even saw exposés of these uh, um, mainstream media uh, newspaper like New York Times, right? So the New York Times now, they can't even hide that blacks were turned, uh, put into slavery. That can give you a sense of what happened in Libya. So after knowing what NATO did with Libya, and that today uh, Zelensky even has the audacity to ask the African Union for an audience. So after trying the Grammys and the Oscars, he has officially requested that the African Union give him time to speak to African leaders. So African leaders are clear that we do not want war and we do not support Zelensky. But what is happening in Ukraine, we saw what our brothers and sisters suffered when the war started. They were blocked at the border. They were even asked to join the war. 
right? There is that famous video of a Congolese refugee who's clearly explaining how they were trying to recruit him to fight with Nazis, the, the, with the, the army of Zelensky and Azov, I always forget the name, the fighting Russia. He clearly says, I'm black too. When I'm going to go there, I'm going to be seen as a NATO uh, soldier and they will kill me first. Why would he say that? He would say that for the same reason of the first time speak before the break. The way they killed Patrick Leona is the same way every African in Ukraine felt when they're getting at the border and they're refusing for them to get on the train. They're refusing for them uh, to cross uh, the border to go to Poland. And some of them, when they got to Poland, were abused by the police. Uh, videos that have already been exposed of all the Congolese refugees who were abused by the police while they were there, there were Nigerians and so on. So we saw already how they treated our people during the time of war. And then at the same time, we're being asked to support a war where we don't know uh, the essence of it. But we are feeling it, even in Ghana, right? The price of milk has doubled. The price of bread has doubled. The price of water, you know, if you have to purchase water, has doubled. And we are even having larger, uh, larger discussion around agriculture. If Africans, in terms of nutrition, we do not grow wheat, we eat maize and corn, why do we have so much wheat in our countries? Because now, because wheat has, uh, the price has gone up, it's affecting also what people are uh, you know, feeding themselves with. So Africans, in looking at the situation, are thinking more about self-reliance. How can we have our countries independent, self-reliant, to provide for its citizens, rather than being caught up in the geopolitics of the world, uh, where we do not know the beginning and the end. So that's the very basic analysis of the ordinary person in the streets. Of course, our politicians are also engaging in these discussions, and many of them, I only speak about those I've been in touch with, that they are getting a lot of pressure for U.S. embassies for them to support Ukraine, for them to support U.S. position regarding Ukraine. They are actually drafting letters that they are hand-delivering to members of parliament to sign saying that, no, we have to condemn Russia, uh, we have to support Zelensky. So when sometimes you may see an African country coming up and saying that they are supporting Ukraine, you, if you are able to investigate, you will see that there has been some influence that's forcing them uh, to actually have the position. And I can say so in, for the case of the DRC. You know, the DRC has voted in support of Ukraine. But what else have they voted for, uh, for that's problematic? The DRC has recognized Western Sahara as the land that belongs to Morocco. What else have they done? The DRC has opened its economic branch of the, uh, of the Congolese uh, embassy uh, from Tel Aviv and moved it to Jerusalem. And then what is happening with the DRC president? It's very close with the United States. It's getting a lot of support to the United States. So when you will see the DRC taking that position, it's not the Congolese people. It's a leader that's been installed by the United States. So all these dynamics are taking place, but the ordinary African is very clear about Ukraine. They do not support war. 
and they do not support Zelensky. And they do not want to be dragged into a world where when wars started on the African continent uh, in different countries, be it Somalia, be it Rwanda, be it the Congo with over 6 million Congolese. Let me say that again. Be it the Congo with over 6 million people dead. No one stopped it. And the war in the Congo is continuing as we speak. As I'm speaking now, last week, dozens of people were massacred. There is no intervention. So the ordinary person would say, how come what we are being killed, the world is watching? Yet, now, we all have to come to it. So the contradictions are, are being exposed very clearly, and that's why Africans are not getting engaged, because they do believe that this is not a genuine support uh, to the oppressed uh, in the region. And, you know, I'm glad you raised the point of the price of food and, and you know, milk and grain and, and, and these kinds of things uh, on the continent that have been affected by the war, uh, because the vote in the U.N. that we're talking about also occurred along economic lines. Uh, you know, basically the way the countries that voted for the war and against the war uh, are, are basically grouped into what uh, are considered core companies, uh, countries rather, like the, the, the wealthier, so-called wealthier countries, Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, you know, a lot of them former colony, colonists, uh, colonizers of the continent of Africa. And then most of the countries that voted against were either countries uh, that are considered periphery countries would basically not as wealthy as those other countries or countries on the periphery. I don't know why they consider, you know, Russia on the periphery, but they do. But I mean, th there is, I think, if people are unclear about whose interest this war serves, I think we can just look at the economic makeup of the countries that voted for this resolution. All of the countries that voted for this resolution were not only, as I said, former colonizers of the continent of Africa, but they are also big old capitalist countries um, that are allies of the United States. So, I mean, what, what does this also mean for the for the the life of U.S. imperialism, which I think Ukraine is almost one of the last battlegrounds for. I think that Ukraine is looking like uh, the, 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 the world referendum on imperialism. And we're seeing the imperial power, the U.S. and its allies fighting for its life. And they're using Ukraine as that referendum. What, what are your thoughts about you know, the economic fall, not just the fallout, but the implications of uh, the countries that voted for this resolution and the uh, the implications for the countries that didn't? Oh, that's a very difficult question uh, for me to even t wrap my head around uh, because it's, I'm looking at it more as the reconfiguration of uh, or the rebalancing of world power. At this moment, we have in the East, China and Russia, who have clearly shown that the world can be different. 
the way even China engages on the African continent. You know, I don't have to invade your country. I don't have to bring you war. The same way Russia has engaged the African continent. You know, they don't have a history of colonialism. I mean, if it wasn't for Vladimir Lenin, we wouldn't have some of the documents. You know, the first WikiLeaks of 1917 was through Vladimir Lenin, exposing the many contracts um, that gave European powers land on the African continent. So we Africans still remember um, what Russia did, what the Bolsheviks did uh, for the African continent. So that relationship that has existed uh, through, um, I could say now, a century, right? A century old uh, relations has Africans in a predisposition to also understand Western influence when it comes to Ukraine. That we are saying that the West is a dying power at the moment. And as you said, that's the standing run is Ukraine. If they lose Ukraine, um, they may not continue the imperialist uh, movement. But from at least the little that I know around the region, now, the, the question of Ukraine and the war that has started is not a war that just happened overnight. Russia very clearly has said many times that if you include Ukraine as a member of NATO, I will take action. So the fact that no one could clearly respond to the demands is a provocation. Right? So the same way they say that nations have the right to defend themselves or others, Russia has this right of uh, defending themselves, uh, their uh, national security. All of us now know that this is a NATO war. It's not a Ukrainian war. It's a NATO war for setting foot and causing a shift in the balance of power that exists around the world. But now, as I mentioned, the ordinary African, they know. I mean, it's similar to if we, we go back to the 2000s. I don't believe that the ordinary American in 2002 believed that, not 2001, 2002, believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and the United States was going there to bring democracy to the Iraqis. And I'm saying that because I was in the United States during that time and people around me often say it jokingly that George Bush, the father, still has a problem with what happened in Kuwait. So the son is trying to finish it. So this was the ordinary person speaking in the street even saying. And there were thousands of Americans who protested this war and that did not make it in mainstream media, right? I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the street near the war. So even the engagement of the military power was to ignore the voice of the ordinary citizen. And this is the same thing that's happening now. Can you imagine the, the thing that on the African continent we kept asking ourselves, how is it possible that even at the Grammys, they are able to talk about Ukraine? But just show you the le the level of uh, you know what we we may call the manufacturing consent that they're creating a lie of why people should support and if right we take them at face value that what they are asking for is actually the right thing to do we must ask why we do not do it anywhere humans have conflicts what makes Ukraine particularly different than, for example, what is happening in Sudan.
Oh, no, as I said before, what's happening in the Congo with the millions of deaths? And I can go on and on. Because if the, the actions, right, the historical actions, show that they were actually on the right side of history and they cared about humanity, the world will not respond the same way. And plus, Africans will not respond the same way. So in some shape or form, yes, there is a rebalancing of power to maintain uh, Western uh, dominance uh, around the world and is to stop Russia and China's advance, where Africans are dealing with Russia and, and China not the same way as they deal with, uh, with the West. And we're seeing clearly, uh, in the case of Mali, the protection of the, the civilians around uh, what is happening with the jihadists. Uh, in the case of Senegal, if I look at uh, what China is doing, they just built a bridge connecting Gambia and uh, Senegal. And if you ask the United States how many roads have they built in any African countries, I'm still waiting to find out if they even build a kilometer. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252113201320 I am here Jackie Lukeman is here Kambale Musavuli is here and we have a caller on the line here Keith tell us what's on your mind uh yes uh I find the um uh democratic republic of the I, I find the Congo a fascinating country and always harking back to my knowledge and history to find that the country was owned by one king Leopold of Belgium, or, or and I couldn't believe that one human could own a place that's almost three times, uh, three quarters the size of the U.S. But anyway, that said, I'm enjoying his his take on things. Just wanted to say that you know, Cold Pink has uh, exp- has uh, decided to go out with a new um, protest, and which supports an end to NATO expansion and Russia's escalation of the war in Ukraine, and finally for a negotiated end to the war. Now, I just want to give some anecdotal information. When I talk to people, I've been to over 37 countries. I've been to Georgia. I've been to Ukraine at least six times. I had a friend beat uh, and put into the hospital, a colleague that worked with me, uh, by the Assault Battalion. He was beaten. It took him a week to get out of the hospital. African-American. Just to give you a little backdrop, these are all anecdotal. But my whole point is, uh, why are people in America either ignorant or so patriotic that when you tell them the truth, you use the, the, the uh, uh, Kennedy analogy of 1962 and the missile crisis of the missile U.S. the U.S. had in Turkey and the missile that uh, the uh, Russians had in, uh, in Cuba. And they negotiated. They said, you take that missile down, we respect your security concerns, and we'll take, you know, vice versa. I don't understand why people get upset when you even suggest 
a negotiated settlement to end this thing. And my, the twin threats of atomic, the, uh, 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 the bulletin of atomic scientists now saying that the doomsday clock is now two minutes to 12, 12 meaning Armageddon. And when you say this to people, they don't care. This is very scary. And then on the other hand, they are so righteous, and you show all the uh, you know contradictions. People are being killed in all these other countries. The Yemenis, uh, people of Yemen, are sitting there with their rib cages extended because they can't eat. They're being bombed the crap out of by the Saudis, but they can't see and compare and contrast. They're stuck on basically uh, patriotism. So on that note, I just like you all to try to you know, unpack that a bit. Thank you. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Keith, for calling in. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, to answer your question, why Americans respond that way is because we've been manipulated. We've been manipulated and ferociously uh, propagandized as it pertains to this issue of the war in Ukraine, just like on so many other things. And as I often point out, the propagandization in the United States, it doesn't start, you know, whenever you happen to start consuming the news, it starts from your earliest memory and it goes right into when you're in school. It impacts the TV shows that are produced. It impacts the movies. It impacts the music. You know, Karl Marx talked about how the dominant ideas of any society are that of its ruling class. So in a capitalist United States, it is the capitalist class, this wealthy minority that hoards the wealth produced by our labor, right? They're the ones who control all of these institutions, the mainstream media, education, entertainment, all of these things. And of course, the government, you know what I mean? All of these things. And so when people on the one hand have a literal lifetime of being conditioned in this way to be supportive of imperialism, right? And that whatever the U.S. does militarily is justified for some reason or another. Then on top of an intense propaganda campaign as it pertains to the war in Ukraine specifically, This is why we get what we get. And see, I I would argue that there's even some confusion as a result of this on behalf of the American people. And I think out of a genuine desire to, you know, want to like, I guess, take the lead of Ukrainians and stuff like that. I mean, we've saw, you know, in recent weeks, we don't really see them anymore, but we have seen in the U.S. these protests with people calling to, quote unquote, close the skies calling for a no-fly zone, right? Now, um, you all may remember, I think it was the other day, we were talking about this, this, this poll where most of the Americans, the American people that were uh, surveyed, said that they, weren't, they didn't want an open uh, conflict with Russia, but said that they supported a no-fly zone which would ultimately mean an open conflict with Russia. So what that tells me is there's a lack of understanding about what these concepts even are. And uh, frankly, the American people are kept ignorant about the implications of these things from this incredible bellicose uh, media apparatus and, of course, uh, the government itself. Now, what does that mean for us as organizers and as movement people? 
it means we have to really think seriously about revolutionary education and and uh, offering a corrective and an alternative to that lifetime of propagandization and manipulation. You know what I mean? And so this is the struggle that we're going to have to really engage in on that person-to-person basis, whether it's on the street, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's at the bar, whether it's at a barbecue. You know what I mean? We, we have to be equipped with the tactic strategies and theories to be able to persuasively make just these kinds of points. But we'll only be successful if we understand that process as a dialogue and that we're not coming in as the almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing revolutionary that is going to bless the ignorant huddled masses with our knowledge, right? But that instead, this is really an exchange and that you're learning as you're teaching Mm -hmm. and the folks you're in conversation with are teaching as they're learning. You see what I mean? So there has to be a real sort of a, a community orientation, a grassroots orientation when we talk about movement building and how we pierce the veil of imperialist lies, misinformation, and war propaganda. But Kambale, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Oh, I don't think that I could add. I think uh, you, the points you made around uh, education, revolutionary education is important. Uh, creating our own media, uh, our own channel of information. Uh, we have uh, many sources, uh, you know, that's mainstream that people listen to who not have the proper information, you know. Um, I have to be on uh, by any means necessary to be able to speak freely and share the information that we have on African continent to the public. CNN will not have this information. So creating other avenues, uh, reliable research, um, information, m- making it accessible to the masses is important. So when people are informed, they can take informed action. Uh, when they're not informed, uh, they um, may not take uh, informed action. That's why I said that I think you were right on point about uh, what we need to do as a people uh, to make sure that we have the right information and we take informed action. Yeah, another thing I want to be sure to touch on with you uh, here, Kambale, as it pertains to the Congo specifically, is this cat Dan uh, Gertler, uh, who uh, was a sanctioned Israeli businessman um, who uh, was originally sanctioned because of corruption that he was involved in with uh, the DRC and its then president, uh, Joseph Kabila. And, and, I'm, and I uh, believe this is uh, concerning Congo's uh, uh, mineral wealth. And I wasn't aware of this, but actually the Trump administration, as it was on its way out, actually granted Gertler something called a sanctions license, which gave him access to be able to get to his frozen funds and the international banking system for at least a year. I never even heard of that. That's pretty wild. And reportedly, the Biden administration has actually reimposed sanction on him uh, recently. But um, I was hoping you could break down just who Gertler is and what uh, is his role in the Congo right now? Definitely. And uh, also the sanctions. I mean, from the premise of the sanctions, one thing is, uh, as he related to U.S. sanctions, I'm not a supporter of the U.S. sanctions. But I know why they have a sanctions on Ben Gertler. You know, U.S. sanctions has been very unilateral, uh, sometimes to serve U.S. interests. And we should all be clear that sanctioning uh, Ben Gertler is also serving U.S. interests. 
even though it may appear that they are doing the right thing for the Congo. Uh, but then Butler is an Israeli businessman. He came in the DRC uh, in the late 1990s. I uh, became very close with Laurent Kabila, who was the rebel leader uh, who took power in 1997. And uh, as he took power, he had challenges buying weapons. Uh, so then Gertler, uh is a former IDF. Uh, he was in the Israeli military, and he has connection in Israel. He was able to facilitate a weapon sale to the DRC uh, at a time where DRC had sanctions, uh, UN sanctions. So given he helped uh, Laurent Kabila get weapons, uh, he became very close to him and also his entourage. After the death of Laurent Kabila, uh, Joseph Kabila uh, took power. As Joseph Kabila took power, he continued the dealing with it. But now he shifted his business model a bit because he was in diamonds. Right? Now, the new business model in the early 2000s was that the Congolese state, I would say Joseph Kabila at the time, will give him mining assets, a penny on the dollar. So when he acquired these mining assets, you know, he does not have experience in copper, in cobalt, he just had a piece of paper saying that he owns the right to X land and he takes that paper to the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange or the Toronto Stock Exchange and then the land is value a billions of dollars. He will then sell it to now a mining company who will now get access to Congress Minerals. So now he became almost like the broker of Congo's mining assets sold illegally. And when he received the money, he found a percentage of that to Congolese officials. And he became a billionaire. He's actually a, he, he became a billionaire off of Congo's mining assets. The other thing that's really important to know about him is not just a businessman. He actually became the Congolese ambassador to the White House. He actually met George Bush, the president, as an envoy of the DRC, he met Condoleezza Rice as an envoy of the DRC president, speaking on behalf of Congo to facilitate relationship between the United States and uh, the DRC. And for those who follow Congo closely, you will know that Joseph Kabila met uh, George Bush in 2007, right after the rigged election. And what did George Bush say when uh, Joseph Kabila was in the White House? George Bush congratulated Kabila for organizing a fair, free and fair election. And that's the word for word what George Bush said. So the facilitation and diplomatic uh, lobby that he did for Congo paid off you know, in making sure that the U.S. does not put pressure on the DRC and, of course, get access to mining assets. But he did that for a long time. But sometime in the past decade, no, no one knows for why the U.S. has changed position toward him. But they have been going now after him to freeze his assets, but he's been around the election. That's when the pressure started happening in 2015. Uh, former president of the Congo, Joseph Kabila, was trying to change the Congolese constitution to run for a third term and or even not run, uh, not organize elections. So the U.S. used a strategy of freezing accounts of people around Kabila all the way to Denver. So when Dan Gertler was sanctioned, 
We saw clearly on the political level in the RC, Joseph Kabila did not present himself to the, uh, the next election, and he allowed the election to take place without him. My interpretation of that is that the U.S. wanted to have a person replace Kabila using Gutler uh, as pressure. But that pressure has continued up until today. The other thing we have to know about Dan Gutler, according to the New York Times, in the expose that wrote about uh, Dan Gutler, is a, an intelligence asset for Mossad and the United States. Yeah, definitely a lot there. I wish we had uh, more time to get into uh, uh, the details about uh, uh, what's happening there with Dan Gertler. We'll have to have you back on some time to discuss that, Kambale. But, you know, I have to say, Jackie, that when we have discussions with uh, uh, people like Kambale, it just sort of further um, cements my resolve, if you will, and just further confirms our need to really build a truly, you know, international working class anti-imperialist movement. And, you know, hearing Kambale sort of describe some of the opinions and uh, uh, analyses that he's heard on the ground in Ghana and in different uh, uh, parts of the African continent. I mean, it shows that even though Americans think they're the most uh, sophisticated and well-informed in truth, we are the most propagandized and frankly behind the law of the world. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. want to thank Kambale so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.